This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. As you would kind of be aware, the Melbourne Festival is in full swing. It wraps up this weekend. Uh, But there's still plenty of shows that are still opening that you can get along to see. One of them is called Germinal. Uh, It's on at the Cooper's Malthouse in the Merlin Theatre. Uh, It opens tonight and runs through until Sunday, 7.30pm. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, and joining us to tell us more is the show's producer, Maureen Thevenet. Welcome to Triple R. Hello. So for those people who don't work in the arts, what exactly does a producer do for well, a theatre production? Well, that's interesting. Well, the producer, yeah, it's it's going along the show, really. It's to help the artist to uh, make their show and go, yeah, and, and, and organise like a big party for them. In the film world, producers often have a bad reputation, uh, but all the theatre makers I speak to speak of such joy and pride in their producers because a producer in, in theatre really does seem to say, I am going to support you in putting this show on, whereas in film, producers seem to come in and go, I don't like that, seeing as I'm paying for it, I'm completely rewriting your ending and, and cutting one of your stars. Yeah, it's true. It's two, it really thinks two different things between the cinema world and theatre world. And producing cinema, it's, yes, it's linked with money, but we more manage the money than decide um, that we're going to throw it to other people or, or take that away. But it's, yeah, it's really a partnership between the artist and the producer and it's it's working together. We're on the same boat and we're just having two different views on the show. Now, Germinal is a French production, but your accent is fascinating. It seems half <laughs> English, half French. Well, that's just me. But I, I used to live in England, so but we're based in France. Yeah. yeah. So I, I love that way that kind of accents become hybridised over time. <laughs> yes. um, is Germinal itself also a hybridised production in that it's more than just a theatre work? Oh, that's, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a very good point, actually. Um, it's a really interesting show because the, the author, I mean, the two artists who created the piece are not going from the theatre world. They really use the theatre tools to to make that show and put that show together. But one is going from visual arts um, and one is going from sites of uh, information science, may I say, and it's more poet. And, and so together um, they build that show, but yeah. Using using theatre tool, but not from theatre world. Which I often think gives artists a, a fascinating perspective because it means they're coming to theatre without the the rules in place that theatre artists sometimes unconsciously or consciously work within. If you're coming to theatre from outside, presumably you're able to, to create work and do things in a way that some theatre makers might scratch their head and go, oh, we'd never thought of doing it like that before. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, in that case, it's really, they they started, both of them started to work on separate, uh, well, together, but on different pieces. And then they said, okay, well, let's put that aside. Let's make something from scratch and, and, and use it that stage to do that together. So, um, yes, yeah, so it's really, um, yeah, it's really writing with those with those tools, but with more um, concept ideas of stuff instead of starting from text-based things. So the concept for this show is creation and it's been described as uh, 
a theatre production that is an allegory for human development and the, uh, the, the, the evolution of the world and, in fact, literally the making of the world. But it's not quite the book of Genesis either. <laughs> it's not quite the book of Genesis. It's really, it's how we can, uh, uh, yeah, just to come back at just what I said, it's really how to do something from a black box and from there what are the different steps to arrive to a point which is a succession of events um, that, um, yeah, that gets together and has coherence and density, as they say. And it's really going through all that line. So from first is black, then comes light, then comes sound, then comes uh, communication, then come, no, then comes thoughts, then communication, then voice, then da-da-da. And together, really together, we just... Un- all those step unravels and um, under our eyes as a spectators. The, and it's really fun. The, the idea of kind of exploring theatrically the way human evolution has, has worked, uh, that notion of, yeah, thought comes first and then language, to the, theatrically kind of show how we begin communicating strikes yeah. me as a fascinating thing to try and capture and represent yeah. in a theatre. Yeah, it's, yeah. But, and really this show, this is really conceptual when we say that, but actually when you watch the show, it's such an easy show to see. And because, because, because those guys are so clever, they really put that together in a very um, strong sense of humour and, and there's some delicacy as well and to go from one point to the other and you they really take you by hand and they you go through this kind of journey to put something together which is kind of beautiful system um, and you come out feeling so clever and like oh yeah oh that's, that's that makes sense now no, it's good and also the the sensitivity required to make a work that doesn't fall back on stereotypes. So in terms of the development of language, mm. for example, and kind of avoiding the stereotype of the grunting kind of ape-like savage, for example, trying trying to leap past that to find more kind of more evocative, richer ways of representing these kind of progression mm. of ideas. Uh, is that a question? It, it, more of a reflection. <laughs> Sorry, I have a bad habit of just saying things that could be a question or could just be yeah, me thinking it? out loud. Mm, um, Speaking about the history of communication. Yeah. Um, it, it strikes me also that this is um, a show that could potentially get very, very complex if we're talking about not only the creation of the world but the evolution of the human race. It's true, but again, it's something that it's, it's such a complexity put together in a very, very simple way. And when you, if, if you go into the show, I mean, when when you, you you follow it, there's the language as well that is used is everyday language, but it's totally written. It's absolutely written, but but there's something very common in a way in the show that brings, yeah, that brings concept to to everyday life. And um, and in a, and the show has been devised by those two artists who are called Alori Guerger and Antoine de Fort, and they really divide that piece together and then brought two performers in and finished the piece as four performer um, theatre piece. Um, theatre performance, let's say. How is it kind of, is there a lot of text-based uh, elements of the work or is it much more expressed visually? It's well. Text is important. Even so, as yeah, um, text is important. Um, it will be all in French and some title in English. But 
um, but it's visual at the same time. Um, but it's it's so it's very simple. I mean, the you think the set there's no much on stage, even so everything is in the stage. I can't say too much. No, we don't want to give... No spoilers. No spoilers. Yeah. But um, uh, there's a, a great review uh, in the New York Times that talk about, talks about the work as uh, uh, it operates in the very best French tradition of combining whimsy yeah. with profundity, which is a, a lovely phrase. And yeah. I, I like that notion of something that can be simultaneously playful but deeply serious. Yeah, it, I think it's a very good... Uh, um, summary of how the show goes because it's really it's so witty and and those guys are so funny but in, in everyday life as well and and so you really totally have empathy with them and you totally um, with them on on following their thoughts which um, yeah from the first seconds really. You'd never left away. Germinal is on at the Malthouse Theatre as part of this year's Melbourne Festival. I've been chatting with uh, Marine Tevenet, the producer of Germinal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm a little sleep deprived, so... Um, it's a slightly interesting morning. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm high. It's just because I, it's the adrenaline rush and the lack of sleep. So if I start giggling uncontrollably during my next interview uh, with Adina Jacobs and Aaron Ozek, I apologise profusely in advance. How are you both? We're good. Yeah, thanks, good, thanks. So uh, you're here to talk about The Book of Exodus Part 2. The Book of Exodus Part 1 was at, on at Theatre Works earlier in the year. Uh, and now the what, sequel, follow-up, second half. How are you? Do you see it as a continuation of the same work or is it a completely separate work? Yeah, so it's not a, it's, you know, it's not a narrative work. You know, it, it's not a to-be-continued kind of thing where if you haven't seen Part 1, you can't see Part 2. They're really like standalone pieces which um, are exploring this um, source material in quite different ways. And the first part, we had a, a cast of two young performers and in this case, we've got a cast of 16. When we say young, how young are we talking? 8 to 13. Okay, so a fair bit of wrangling. Primary school, yeah. yeah. And yeah, just early high school. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So... Creating work with children and giving them agency uh, to to express themselves and take control of the work. Talk to us about the challenges of that, but also the joys of that. Because from what I know of your work, you're not just dragging kids and pushing them around on stage and making them jump through hoops. You're, you are giving them agency and helping them inform the work. Yeah, I think it's a two-way street in some ways. It's the same way that we would approach making a work with adults where, you know, initially Aaron and I and the creative team are... Um, researching and trying to access the key ideas and, and conceiving the, the frame for the work. But ultimately, we want to be inspired by our performers and kind of just get to know them and, and um, get a sense of what their instincts and responses are and what their imaginative worlds are. And when you're doing that with a group of young people who may have never been involved in the theatre before, that can be incredibly refreshing and exciting and surprising in terms of what their responses are. So I mean, while we do think it's important to give um, young people agency, it's also just about a, a process of, of making work which is um, generative and collaborative and um, organic to the extent that we're still making it up until tonight when we open. <laughs> How do you find the kids? As in, kind of, do you... Called casting agents, you putting the word out. I thought out. you meant how do we find them? Like, yeah, like what, what are, are they like? like yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, a lot of a lot of kids came through the St Martin's Youth Arts Centre. There are some kids who are siblings of kids who are in Part One. Um, we sort of put our feelers out in all directions. We uh, Dina went and talked to a school assembly. Um, so kind of however we can um, get the word out there. Um, it's a pretty diverse range of kids from a whole bunch of different schools. Yeah. Which would then have the added bonus too, that for some of the kids it, they may be kind of meeting kids from kind of a different part of Melbourne, kind of kids with very different lived experiences to, to their own. So they're not Definitely. just making theatre, they're learning more about the world outside that tiny little bubble that is your your life as a child between family, school and and friends. Definitely, yeah. And I think those experiences as a kid are huge you know being in a room with a whole bunch of people that you would have never encountered before and not just being in a room socially but um you know creating this world together with these other people is a really yeah it is a really kind of um interesting thing for them and yeah i think it's sort of um in a way it's really exciting being able to do a a work with a large cast now because on part one it was sort of like two performers in the room and 10 adults <laughs> kind of looking at them whereas now the kids outnumber us and they kind of have a, a tribal agency as well as an individual one. Now talk to us about uh, not kind of the, the story of the show that you are making but the, the kind of idea and themes you wanted to explore. So the, the book of Exodus we have a group of children in a desert waiting for a leader with no leader. What's, the, what's going on there? I mean, the the part of the story that it refers to is after the liberation from slavery in Egypt. Um, so I think most people remember the image of the Red Sea parting and the children of Israel walking through to freedom. Um, and I guess um, part two is more situated around the, the images from, um, from the desert um, and the kind of the problems that emerge um, after liberation, which are problems of leadership and meaning and faith and law and those kinds of things. Um, so I guess it looks at the part of the story where um, their leader, Moses, has gone up to the mountain to talk to God and receive the law and there's a kind of a power vacuum, I guess, um, and for that period the people have no leader and, and no God um, and they create an idol, um, a golden calf, um, to sort of fill that gap of leadership and meaning and um, parenthood. Yeah. I'm having unsettling flat flashbacks to Bible studies as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the notion, the, the golden calf and those kind of things are, are literally things that I have, like, they are buried in my mind somewhere. Yeah. They're, they're part of this kind of, uh, part of my upbringing. Because what I was thinking was really fascinating is that one of the, the, the ideas that will become universal about this work is that what happens after you have a revolution? Because for so many people, kind of regardless of whether you're in a political struggle or a personal struggle or whatever, when you're trying to change your personal situation, that of the people around you, that of the world as a whole, so much you're focused on kind of, that is your end goal and no one really seems to think about what will happen once you have cast off the yoke of power or take or uh, kind of successfully uh, staged a, a coup in the in mm. the palace or in a city or whatever. That notion of 
the big what next is a fascinating thing to explore dramatically. Yeah, and I think it's a metaphor for um, youth in some ways. And when I think back at the past few works that we've made with young people, they're all in this sort of liminal state of waiting or on the brink of a future that they, you know, that they don't know. Um, and particularly in relation to that, you know, when you sort of talk about a whole group of people who don't know what's going to come next and they have, you know, uh, broken through the gates but to, you know, to what they don't know. I mean, in a way, a group of young people have access not necessarily to the kind of philosophical ideas around that but to the very the feeling of that is something that they can actually embody in a really interesting and very direct way, I think. Um, yeah. Why... why uh, why this fascination with that kind of liminal space between kind of childhood slash adolescence and adulthood? Because mm. it, it's something that you've explored in your work quite a lot. I think what's really interesting about it, we were talking about this actually the other night, kind of coming to the end of this trilogy, but there is a sense of um, the desire as an adult, there is a desire to kind of stop time or um, think about those states of a kind of arrested development or arrested time and to explore those again and again because as adults we feel that time is passing and there is something about just trying to kind of, um, I don't know, put a stop to that in some way and, and look at those moments where um, there is a kind of in-betweenness for these young people but I don't know. It's, it, yeah, so it's a really interesting and probably really key question. I think it's also, it is partly that performers in that kind of liminal state are they're just more interesting than adults in some ways because they haven't found their boundaries yet. Mm. Um, and in terms of, like, devised work and improvised work, that's just an extremely fascinating state to have performers in where, you know, an eight-year-old can't yet control their arms in the same way that, you know, even a teenager can. And there's something fascinating about seeing the effort to do that and the failure to do that and then the effort again and um, or they'll get kind of distracted by something on the other side of the room and those sorts of things, like, really keep surprising us and are just really interesting kind of choreographically, I suppose. The idea of wanting to put a break or put a hold on time fascinates me as well because if you do that, you would perhaps then also run the risk of putting breaks on creativity because creativity comes with change. So if kind of you, you froze something for a moment, you would risk kind of ending creativity as well. Yeah, well, in a way, that's kind of the the golden calf episode is about that in the sense that they make the calf with the gold that they've brought from Egypt. Um, so in a sense, their, um, their problem is that they're liberated. But as you say, like as happens after revolution, the first thing that happens is people start going, oh, maybe it was better before the revolution. Um, so there's a sense when they make the golden calf that they're freezing time and they're kind of arresting their own development and they've kind of failed to take the next step into some sort of future. So it's, it is a story of regression as much as progress. The production is The Book of Exodus Part 2 at Theatre Works in St Kilda. Uh, running, so previewed yesterday? Yes. So uh, I'm imagining that you're both exhausted because you were probably kind of up talking about the show and dissecting it and going, so that's what it works like in front of an audience. Um, uh, and you book at theatreworks.org.au. Chookers to you both for your Thank opening you. night. Thanks.
the last time I was in Paris. I didn't lay a wreath, but I did go and sit by his grave and read, admittedly, in a slightly, I don't know, show-offy, oh, look, I have Oscar Wilde in my pocket. I'll just pull it out of my pocket. I had planned to drink champagne by his grave and pour out a small libation for him, but I couldn't find any cold champagne for sale in the area, and I refused to offer Oscar Wilde warm champagne. That is a crime almost as abominable as, uh, I don't know, uh, two years' hard labour in Reading Jail. Uh, joining us in the studio to tell us about the Ballad of Reading Jail, which is being performed at Old Melbourne Jail, uh, I'm joined by performer Marco Lawrence and director Alice Bishop. Welcome to you both. Hi, Richard. Good morning. Hello, Richard. So, Marco, let's start with you. This is the second time that this kind of uh, staged reading of Wilde's uh, The Ballad of Reading Jail has been presented in Melbourne's oldest jail, uh, backed by popular demand. I take it the first one just kind of went gangbusters. Well, yeah, we sold out pretty quickly. You know, it's very, uh, it's very specific. So uh, it was, I, I figured it was always going to sell pretty quick. So I'm delighted that it's come back because I didn't get to see the, the first iteration. So, um, but why this particular poem? It's the, the last great work of literature that Wilde wrote after being released from jail and before he died. Yep. Um, so it's and it was written almost as a polemic in a way to yep. to protest yep. uh, the death penalty to protest yep. the 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 cruel kind of nature of life in jail. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, the, well, this is kind of like a small chunk of the pie, if you like. I sort of, if I could just sort of just give a bit of background. So I've been working. I, I do the Hangman's Night tours at the Old Melbourne Jail. I've been doing them for about fifteen years. And um, I'd always kind of looked for something to kind of, you know, do at the jail that that didn't involve alcohol, really. Uh, So I thought, you know, maybe maybe a kind of... And as you walk in the jail, as you actually walk in the jail itself, there's just a little plaque that says that little cry, although the wall is strong. So I thought... Hey, after 15 years, it just sort of like a light bulb went off in my head and I went, well, the Ballad of Reading Jail, it'd be perfect. So thus, you know, it's born from there. But of course, Australia is littered with these old, you know, m- you know, these old sort of Pentonville design prisons. Uh, and really what I wanted to do was uh, just kind of, in a way, kind of introduce art back into them in a way that sort of reinvigorated them in a way and I thought, you know, Wilde's kind of cry from prison was just the perfect thing to, to put in there. Alice, the, when directing a work like this, I imagine that there's the risk that it uh, could become very kind of overtly dramatic, kind of the, the combination of the poem itself and the setting lends itself to melodrama in a way. So how do you as director Look, pull absolutely. it back? Absolutely. I've always been a big fan of uh, Mr Wilde and um, in your introduction, talking about going to Père Lachaise, like many, many years ago when I first arrived in Paris, I went straight to Oscar, said hello, um, you know, gave him my regards and, and was very unhappy I didn't have any red lipstick to put a kiss on his tomb which you know is is um uh, has become quite a, a a tradition now 
when I when Mark first asked me whether I'd be interested, I was terrified because like I love him and I want to get it right. And part of that was absolutely avoiding the melodrama, being true to it, like it's an extraordinary, big, living, breathing piece of poetry, and it's quite a departure from him in style. In that he used to be, uh, arguably, I'm not a uh, an expert in poetry, but arguably more romantic, and this was in the form of a ballad, which was is the form of the common man. He really was interested in having his poem that talks a lot about penal reform being read and being widely I think he even joked that that for the first time he was going to be read by his peers i.e. the criminal classes um, so I don't as a director I didn't want to get in the way of it I wanted to really honour what he was talking about because I think it's incredibly relevant still and always will be and there's a central paradox in the play in the in the piece about um, you know the brutality of even though that hardened criminals are being treated so brutally, what's, uh, what's being done in the name of reform is even more brutal. So as a director, I really wanted to work with voices and get quite a, a, a choral... We have a cast of four, two men, two women, because it's very much a female story as well. And at the old Melbourne jail, there, a lot of people don't know this, but there was a female section that has been pulled down many years ago now. And the original jail, much, much larger than the single wing that remains. Correct. Yes, yeah. and in the early days of the old Melbourne jail, like women were quartered with the men in, you know, in cells of very small cells holding 30 or 50 prisoners where people could only stand. And women in with men, it was just terrifying. Anyway, so... So largely the way I come to it is I really wanted to honour this piece of work that I'd read many years ago and completely loved and also wanted to really work with the actors around voices and really inhabiting and taking the poem off the page. So it's not just a reading. It's, um, well, it's not a reading per se. It's a performance that is set in the extraordinary backdrop of the old Melbourne jail and we use the levels and travel the audience through the jail so we can experience the whole spooky, <laughs> the whole spooky atmosphere and it is incredibly spooky, mm. as Mark will attest to, working there for so long. Now, the, the one of the things that fascinates me about the poem is that it's written to honour the execution of a man who murdered his wife. So there's this really difficult conundrum at the heart of the piece in some way. It's kind of... Because the our attitudes to, towards what would have been called in Wilde's Day a crime of passion have changed significantly. We're so much more aware of domestic violence and, and the issues yes. surrounding that. So kind of in some ways it's almost this kind of um, kind of gothic realist kind of uh, acknowledgement of almost honouring of, of a murderer whose crime today we would consider quite kind of uh, dishonourable uh, and quite repugnant. So there's this strange emotional conflict that I have with the poem, but I also recognise the beauty of the poem and the fact that one of the lines in it, each man kills the thing he loves... People don't even know the poem, but they know that line. Everybody that line. knows that line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly right. Charles Thomas Waldridge was uh, was in Reading Jail in 1896, up for execution, and the the narrator of the poem rather. I don't think he he um, 
he affords him respect but but not honor i think very much what the prisoners are talking about what the the narrator is talking about is the curiosity with which the other prisoners are looking at a man who is up for execution we, and why we, we also see that we also see it through their eyes you know we feel you know you know by by means of this execution or this 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 kind of impending execution we kind of it allows him if you like a, a gateway to then feed to us exactly what it's like in there and how the prisoners are feeling and the impending execution how that kind of relates to them and their day and their nights and and on and on and on it goes it's kind of there's something about the i mean wild loved paradox uh and kind of and and satire so there's a there's certainly an element of paradox in the poem as well yeah absolutely i think there's several paradoxes that that run through it um you know there's an enormous there's enormous tracks around like um prisoners relationship with god and spirituality there's the tracks that really are propagandist in the way they address penal reform um everything is in there it's a it's a really long poem and he's got everything in it as his last work um apart from a couple of letters it's quite an extraordinary uh, leaving. Michael, what's it like to read his words in the jail itself? That kind of the setting must give it so much extra kind of weight and atmosphere. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Look, I, I think one of the, and this is why it's been so good having Alice, who's so into the actual um, piece and knows it so well, is that. Um, you know, they, you, you, you give an actor a sniff of, you know, some, you know, any chance of kind of pyrotechnics and they'll just go bananas, you know. You'll have bells and whistles. and but it, So the real gift, the real thing here is to not lean too heavily on it, is to just let the words speak for themselves. And the interesting thing about the jail is when you actually walk through those doors off, um, off Russell Street, and those doors shut behind you. The Mel- Melbourne just melts away, and it's eerily silent. And you know, the, the prison itself becomes a part of the reading. It, it, it becomes a really integral part of the set, and of um, and of what we do. So you just need to say the words. You need to honour the words, and you just need to make sure that you know you don't get too ahead of yourself, and just. Allow, 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 you, allow yourself the time to breathe and the space to let the words just echo through. And it's a meditation, you know, they're so beautiful. And, and it uh, has such gravitas because yeah. we're actually working in a space where so many people died mm, under the that's gallows. Right. Yeah, that's right. Oscar Wilde, The Ballad of Reading Jail is being performed this Sunday, the 22nd of October, 8pm at the Old Melbourne Jail. Can I just give years. a really quick shout-out to... Um, a couple of people involved in the show who haven't talked about um, uh, Phoenix, the street artist, who's actually crafted a set quite ingeniously out of um, phrases from the ballad, and he's strung them up through the jail, and they look as though they're kind of suspended in air. It's quite quite amazing when the light hits it. And to Peter McEwen, who's um, done a wonderful live soundtrack for us as we tell the poem, as we go through the story of um, of. Um, Charles Thomas Wooldridge and our own Oscar Wilde. The Ballad of Reading Jail this Sunday night, 8pm uh, at the Old Melbourne Jail. Ticket entry, as I said, 
as you've heard, sorry, include entry to the jail itself. There is no seating. This is a standing show only. Do bear that in mind. But you but can we book... can look after you if we have a, a patron who's disabled or needs some special care. We can look after you. Great. Nine three four seven six one four two is the number to book. Uh, Marco, Alice, thank you both for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks thank so you, much. Thank you so much. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.